With the Toyota Yaris, we wanted to create a car that was even more exciting, even more energetic, even more electric, without ever needing to be plugged in. Challenge accepted. The self-charging hybrid electric Toyota Yaris, voted Car of the Year 2021. Ask your dealer about flexible payment options today. You'll never take a wrong turn with Toyota. Built for a better world. If Didier Deschamps were to leave and Zinedine Zidane were available and he was not picked by the French Federation, the headquarters of the French Federation would have to look at what happened at the Bastille. OTB AM, live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Quick start car insurance that's ready when you are. Sort your policy anytime online at getsetgo.ie. Brian O'Driscoll on Off the Ball with Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. Team of us, everyone in. Okay, there's lots for us to get stuck into. The new rugby championship is here. There have been significant law changes. There's been some big signings, particularly in Ulster. There'll be a new CEO at the IRFU soon enough. The women aren't going to the Rugby World Cup and a few of the coaching gigs are in question. Brian, welcome back. Uh, good to be back, Jared. Quiet week. Yeah, and it's been a quiet kind of off-season as well, where suddenly um, a battle has emerged for the soul of rugby. I was reading some of the English commentary ahead of the All Blacks Springboks game at the weekend, and they were praying for the All Blacks to whoop the Springboks. Maybe it's just a hangover from the Lions, I'm not sure. But um, yeah, how are you doing? Where do you, where do you want to start? There's a, a smorgasbord here for us to feast on. Um, dealer's choice. Um, I don't mind. We, I suppose, we should get the disappointment of the women's um, qualification process um, out. It's a, it's a very important um, conversation piece. Rather than getting it out of the way, I think it's probably should take precedence. I don't want to start negatively, but ultimately, I think we were all, you know, so disappointed for them. Um, knowing the work and energy that goes into it. Um, but yet, in reality, that just enough hasn't been done um, since, you know, the the, the big years in, in the, at the start of the last decade, win, you know, winning the Grand Slam, you know, beating New Zealand for the first time, uh, getting to a World Cup semi-final, and then ultimately just the question marks around funding and um, and a focus towards the women's game that just hasn't been there. So... Yeah, it just doesn't seem right that Ireland would go to a Women's World Cup and, and or, or Ireland won't be going to a Women's World Cup. There'll be one on and we won't have any uh, added interest in it. It's such a setback because that's the next 18 months. That's the obsession. That's the build-up. That's the sponsorship. That's the media coverage. That's the planning. That's players maybe drifting back to other sports that they've been tempted away from. Yeah, and and it's 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 never been more important. It's at a you know it's at a time where finally women's there's been a huge a sharper focus being put towards the necessity to um, to improve you know the funding within women's game, trying to improve participation, the twenty by twenty campaign, um, to to get more um, media interest in it. So. It feels like there's a, a real movement, albeit some people will say that it's stuttered. But it's it's of a time where we need to have our female players playing in the pinnacle competition next year, and they're not going to be. And 
where has that all gone wrong? And I saw some calls for, you know, there's going to be an independent report or a, a report, I should say, I don't know whether it's going to be independent within the IRFU as to see where it all went wrong. And someone um, has called, you know, one of the ex-players has called for it to be made public and, um, you know, for us to be able to pr truly understand what the shortcomings have been so we can um, go and, and, and counter them and make sure that, this error and, and and the sequence of events that have led to this never happen again and that the right structure and the right strategy is put in place that we actually develop and take advantage of lots of young talent. There's plenty of you know young girls signing up to playing minis rugby across the country. How do you hold on to them when you see the success that you know women's Gaelic football is going through and the and the level of support that that's garnered over the last number of years? the high participation levels in it um, and and the, the kind of fun being derived from that and and the positivity being derived from that. I think, you know, in the last six months, as much as we've tried to push forward the women's uh, game, you know, maybe um, some of the results haven't um, correlated with our, our willingness to, to drive it forward, but that comes from not being in a position to be able to do so because of the funding. And it also ultimately comes back to that, about grassroots initiatives, about funding at the top level, about giving um, you know, these um, women and girls an opportunity to train as best they possibly can, because ultimately they're also working. Um, it's an amateur sport. So how can we give them the best chance of delivering um, the performances that we, we hope and, and, and expect? In a funny way, the, the opportunity here is to actually build a player pathway that is robust and that will withstand the rigours of that and that takes into full cognizance the fact that these are amateurs. But that also feeds into the issues that the clubs have been having over the last 18 months and that's the wider rugby public. It's like uh, you really need the bedrock of those clubs when things go horribly wrong like they have done over the last 18 months with the arrival of COVID. And the clubs are kind of struggling uh, to, to stay above water. And that... that has never really been a pathway for our elite players it's tended to be through the schools and, and kind of through the youth system but unless we actually kind of decide what the role the clubs are, have within Irish rugby then the women's game can't grow but there's also that kind of middle tier of the men's game where the late bloomers are going to come through and again I don't know it feels like we really need to have an honest conversation about that yeah, I, I agree. I, listen, there's no doubt this the pandemic has not helped with regard to club rugby. It's, you know, amateur rugby across the board has been on hold um, for large parts of of COVID, and um, and as a result, clubs have really struggled from a financial point of view. They rely so much on gate receipts, on people going and and socialising, and, and there's been none of that. So they've really been hammered from that perspective. But I, I, I think. You know, and, and this is not IRFU bashing in any shape or form. They've done a fantastic job as far as the professional game goes. The structures they put in place early on have really um, have put Ireland in a position where they probably have never been with a consistency of performance on the international stage and at the and at provincial level. But as positive as it's been for the males game, I think it's possibly been as equally negative from a female participation point of view or a, a female involvement point of view. I think um, the resources that have clearly not been put into the game, I think we have to um, look back and realize what's 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 important. Is it is it the enhancement of a game that's already flourishing 
or do we have to um, look at taking some aspects from what you know what funding has gone into the males game and uh, and the professional game and find a path into the females game and I think we all know the answer to that um, I do feel as though the the bedrock of the of the women's game because it's amateur of course is going to be the club game and um, it goes back to young girls and grassroots being able to see their um, their heroes and their role models performing in the best possible manner which they can and that only comes with them being in, uh, allowed to do that and that um, that is training in the best facilities, having the right kit, having the best S&C, having nutritionists. They, they can't, they, they're, they're um, formidable in being able to look after themselves, but that can only go so far. You need expertise as well. And all of these things will help towards um, a much improved performance and albeit a, a level of professionalism without actually being professional. And that's what they're requesting right now. It's not that they're you know, immediately going to turn into being a professional outfit. It's about having professional resources put to them to be able to perform at an elite level. Yeah, I mean, there, there are loads of templates within Irish sport that you can look at. Um, you know, a, a lot of our uh, Olympians going back generations had definitely not got enough income from being athletes and they had to supplement that so that's one model there's always the GAA which is right there as well where mm -hmm. there is an opportunity and again you know you would expect that rugby will be able to find roles within the sport for enough women to be semi full-time semi-professional and uh, have willing employers who understand what the commitment level is going to be to be an Irish international or a Leinster player or a Munster player and then hopefully that has a knock-on impact on, on the girls coming through because there isn't going to be a school system replica for teenage girls coming through. That, it's, that, you know, that's not a model that's going to uh, be built or evolve organically. Something else has to happen. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, the reality is that the, the strength of where the, the men's game and you look at the academy system coming through the Leinster schools and, and maybe to a slightly lesser degree the Munster and, and Connacht and, and Ulster schools, but that's that, that's not realistic. Um, you're not all of a sudden going to form um, rugby teams within you know girls' schools in the next five or ten years. Um, there might be some interest level, but you know for it to reinforce the the game i don't think that's realistic so um you've got to identify where the route to um you know securing you know better future performances and more participation levels and more interest levels and that's going to happen through um through the club game so we, you know we'll we could we could talk um till the cows come home about it but ultimately um, it becomes about a, a funding issue and and resources being put into something. And when resources are put into something and you don't get the results, okay, then you can you know then you can be critiqued. But when you haven't had it and when you're doing your level best to to perform on you know, on meager proportions, I think um, the only people that that can um, you know you can give out to is the, the the powers that be that have you know let this team down. Let's let's move on because I want to talk about the rest of the the uh, the global situation within that where we fit in at the moment. Um, I I hate doing this, but it's two years from the World Cup, and and we had Paul O'Connell in studio recently, uh, and I was like, oh look, we're all obsessed about the World Cup. He's like, no no no, you're obsessed about the World Cup. We're not obsessed about the World Cup. I'm like, well, okay, fair enough. But they are. Everybody's obsessed about the World Cup because of of how we haven't quite 
um, reached the semi-final yet uh, and or done even better uh, the, the the battle at the moment, the conversations at the moment about the global game and the style of play is actually really interesting. And it's really interesting for us to watch, having watched how the Lions went and played the Springboks unsuccessfully over the course of that tour, essentially, and then watched how New Zealand and Australia have tried to tackle that problem in a slightly different way. And we're watching our own teams at the weekend in that context of, like, ultimately, the the way that the players are playing week in, week out has to translate to international rugby and has to be seen in, in that context. So are we going the right direction as, as a rugby culture? Are we trying the right things? Are, are we amplifying the, the skilled players and the brute players? Have we got the right combinations? Where are we at the moment? I, I think we're in a, in, a, in a positive light with the way we're trying to play the game, being, being brutally honest. Um, and I think I don't think you can throw a blanket over all four provinces. That said, I do fi- I do see at times that the style of all four provinces is very, very watchable. And you've got a coach at international level that, albeit he's come from, you know, maybe more pragmatic backgrounds with certain teams that he's been involved in, I think he's listening to his players and listening to the style of rugby that they want to play. We have to be realistic too that... Um, you know, when it comes to the national team, we um, have to play smart. We can't uh, go toe-to-toe with the biggest teams in the world. We can't go toe-to-toe and, and expect to get the better of South Africa on a regular basis. Likewise with France, likewise with England. So we've got to play smart and um, with big variety. And I think if you look uh, over the course of the weekend at some of the performances and even you know, looking to, to last year, what Andy Friend is doing in Connacht. I think he's playing an exciting brand. Um, but the reality is, you know, he the the squad that he is is selecting from isn't of the same strength of the of the other three provinces. So I think with the resources that he has, I think he's doing particularly well. Um, Ulster at times have have they've sort of peaked and troughed a little bit, um, but play some good rugby, have some exciting young players breaking through. So um, you know, a bit to get excited about up there. Um, we'll come back to Munster in a second. Leinster, I think, picked up where they left off last year. I thought they were really, really good in the first game. Le- reading Stuart Lancaster today, you know, talking about the New Zealand-South Africa game, we very much want to be considered to be of a more of a New Zealand style than a South African style. So I think everyone is um, is very aware of the fact that South Africa won the Rugby World Cup in a brand that you would not you know, you wouldn't open your curtains for in some regards, but yet it's winning rugby. Um, and that's ultimately what it's about. But we want more now as a viewer, as some, as, as people, as, as a collective that wants to develop the game and, you know, get new eyeballs watching our sport as well. That is not the style that's going to do it. The New Zealand style is, the Australian style is, the France style is, um, Ireland at times style is, the Leinster style is. So I, I do feel as though, um, we as a nation are going in the right direction and most of the world is kicking back against the way South Africa are playing but they don't care because they're you know they were winning they won the Lions Tour they won the World Cup and ultimately that's what that's what matters um, for um, you know for for success um, and for you know credibility is how you get the job done not the manner in which you get it done yeah and I think if we had a, a bunch of six foot ten farm strength forwards we'd be happy to 
play the ball amongst them and beat you 5 nil, and away away we go with our World Cup but um, we don't have those and we never will have those we're going to need to play a different type of rugby we are going to we are going to and um, well, you, you look again at this you know we got South Africa in the pool got Scotland in our pool um, so you know to get out first and foremost we're going to have to um, play three good matches who knows against South Africa you know they're not a team that frighten us but you, you know you at the same time you can you can get you can get mauled by them um, but then you know the carrot at the end of that is either France or New Zealand so for us to get into a semi-final we're going to have to do it the hard way yeah. yet again yeah. um, and so that you could look at that as being a bit of a deflator but in a one-off game against New Zealand, who we've beaten now finally um, a couple of times, France, we are capable of beating, albeit they're on the up. But, you know, if you can rattle their cages, they can be beaten. So I don't think we should be afraid. Um, but um, at the same time, you know, we have to be wary that we're going to have to really you know, deliver something that we haven't managed to do before in the pinnacle tournament if we are to get to that elusive uh, semi-final. So... I think we're we're with it, it does become a resource thing as well, not just from a funding point of view, but from a player base point of view. You look at 140, 150 professional players comparatively to the numbers in New Zealand, uh, South Africa, England, France. It, there's no shock that we're not able to compete at the same level. That said, you know, and I know the numbers are probably bigger in in Wales, but. You look at the, their um, population; they're still able to deliver at a high level. They've been to three, I think, Rugby World Cup semi-finals uh, at this stage. Um, they, you know, year on year, they look as though even when they were um, hammered by injuries in 2015, they pushed South Africa right to the uh, to, to the breaking point. Um, so they 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 have shown something more, a, a steeliness greater than what Ireland has shown over the course of their World Cup experience. So we need to find a way to deliver that uh, at the big stage. And no point in waiting for 2027 for it because we've got a tough draw in 2023. You've got to try and find a way to get out of the pool, beat Scotland first, minimum, uh, get to a World Cup quarterfinal and uh, and then take on one of the big two, one of the two favourites of the tournament and and see what comes of it. Uh, we all hate to overreact to the opening weekend of the season, but it was interesting that Leinster picked uh, second 10 at 12. Uh, Frawley started the game. Traditionally, would you have unveiled new things this early in the season? Is it is it an indicator? Was it just about availability? What What's your take on... Well, I, I think with Frawley, the the reality is he's he's probably down the pecking order. I think, I don't know what's going to come of Harry Byrne, whether he's flattered to deceive or whether he's going to elevate himself this season and, and, um, and, and push for a starting birth or a starting 23 ahead of his brother. We'll have to wait and see, but obviously with Frawley, um, if you're, a, if you've a, you're a really good footballer, but yet you're fourth choice 10, you're going to have to find another route. Um, to playing uh, in the team. Um, the same happened to me in the Leinster Schools team of 1997, where Andy Dunn um, was coming from Belvedere. He was going to be the 10 for the Leinster Schools. So if I wanted to play in the team, I had to find another position. And that happened to be my first time ever playing at centre. So funny how these things work out. You, Your hand gets forced because of uh, competition in another spot. So you find yourself... 
um, varying your skills or bringing a different skill set um, to to another position. And of all of, you know, Frawley is a, he's quite a tall guy. He's quite lean. Um, I guess there's question marks at the moment around his physicality, whether he could do it at the very highest level of European rugby. We'll have to wait and see. But he's still a young guy. But he has, um, he's able to pick passes very, very well at 12. And um, there was, there was, it was an aspect that Noel Reed was able to bring, but he was never able to bring the physicality. And I guess there's question marks um, around Frawley so far. He's a proficient tackler. He'll give you a bit of advantage line, but he's not going to get you over uh, the gain line like a Robbie Henshaw will or um, a Joe Tomani will. Um, but um, but we'll have to wait and see what the evolution of that looks like. Um, the reality is Henshaw and Ringrose are going to be the first choice centre pairing when both are fit. So um, it's it's what um, Frawley does when he is selected at 12 in the other games we'll, we'll have to keep an eye on. Is there a possibility that what Leinster are trying to do is, is discover what it would be like to play with two out halves and understand a bit more about if they need to go to that in games or if they need to go to that against certain opposition that it's not an automatic that the 12 and 13 are nailed on for all the big games simply by virtue of the fact that they're the best players but that actually tactically they want to try and do something different with essentially two out halves Yeah well you have to remember too Ger, that when, when do you ever get to pick from a full deck um, you know you look at the injury profiles of Ringrose and Henshaw they have spent a number of months out over the course of the last three, four seasons together. So there will be opportunities um, for other players to go in and stamp um, their style on on the game. And you can't um, expect uh, Kieran Frawley to come in and play a Robbie Henshaw style. That's not fair and that's not realistic. So you have to have an ability to be able to adapt your game depending on the personnel that um, are on the starting team sheet. and sometimes it's a case of getting your best players on the park as well, irrespective of what their numbers are. You have to, you have to remember, too, that um, numbers are most relevant when you're starting the game, be it scrum, line-out, or kickoff. Not even kickoff, scrum or line-out. After that, you, know, you just become a footballer. Guys in the centre can play out in the wing if it means you know regeneration of players from rooks, not running out to their position in the wing, but filling in at 10 or at centre, everyone has an ability backs and forwards to be ball handlers and um, as soon as you are are kind of caught up with the number on your back and and focused on playing in that position I think you lose sight of where the space is going to be so I do feel as though um, the the way that you know looking at Leinster in particular the way they're they're being um, taught and and coached um, you see an awful lot of players filling in in midfield and pushing players out rather than running an extra 30 metres, tiring themselves out and then having less of an impact on the next phase. So these are all small little details that are evolving in our game and I, I think you'll see more of it uh, transpiring across all provinces this season. Well, that was one of the things I was interested to get your take on. There, there wasn't a huge injection of talent, um, you know, international quality talent coming into the, the Leinster setup. There's obviously a bunch of players coming back from injury. There are players who are maturing. The squad is getting increasingly bigger as the next... Uh... With the Toyota Yaris, we wanted to create a car that was even more exciting, even more energetic even more electric without ever needing to be plugged in challenge accepted 
The self-charging hybrid electric Toyota Yaris, voted Car of the Year 2021. Ask your dealer about flexible payment options today. You'll never take a wrong turn with Toyota. Built for a better world. A generation of, uh, of, of um, younger players come through. So the stability there is the main thing that gives them an advantage because last year they fell just short at the key moment when it was right there for them and it fell just short in a similar manner to the way it's fallen just short over the last couple of years. So what what... What are we looking for over the next couple of months to establish that Leinster won't fall just short in the same manner again? Yeah, Ger, there's not much between winning and losing in these things. And I think you can scrutinise it sometimes when it doesn't go your way. Um, you know, they did manage to win um, in Bilbao a few seasons ago, but would we have torn them asunder if for some reason um, the drop goal had been knocked over and it went to injury time and they lost it? Like the the... When you get to semi-final and final level, um, you know, yes, they've succumbed to Saracens, they succumbed to La Rochelle and has come across as, a, a, you know, a, as being ultimately beaten up in those games. But Leinster had, you know, physically dominated La Rochelle for the first 10 or 15 minutes of that game as well. So I don't think it's as easy as computing it to just being pushed around. Um I think game management is a is a big component as well. I think not much was made, well, not enough was possibly made of the, the lack of Jonathan Sexton. I know he was trying to sit that one out because he felt as though they might have enough to get to the final um, where you know, an extra couple of weeks would have served him well from his, from his head injury point of view or from co- concussion point of view. So it, these are all micro moments in and, and micro decisions in... Um, in a game of um, of inches, and um, I, I, I do feel sometimes we over scrutinise the difference between success and failure. Um, you know, ordinarily, if you look, if you take Leinster out of the equation on the last over the course of the last four or five years, would Munster have a couple of Pro 14 titles more than likely because of the style and, and calibre of where they've improved. But everyone is comparing them to the team of the 2000s, which they're not. They're, that was a once-in-a-generation team. And that, that's the standard that has been um, set for Munster Rugby. But ultimately, the players haven't matched the calibre of those players back then. And they're getting closer and closer, but they're falling short. Um, not by a huge amount, but they are falling short. And that's sport. Sometimes... Um, you're going to squeeze by on the really tight ones and sometimes you're going to lose consecutively on, on on tight ones too. And that doesn't mean that you have to reinvent the wheel the following season. It just means that you need a little bit of luck or you need to modify things slightly to give yourself a chance of winning that next one. So I, I do feel as though success, sometimes you get too much credit and defeat, you get too much um, critique. Um, you know, you, you, you know, it, it's not as simple as that. It's, Sometimes it's just a case of you know, the rub of the green went for you and that's the difference between success and failure at the very top level. Okay, let's talk about Munster because you mentioned there the um, the great team that they had. This team this season at the moment is the closest they've had in terms of strength and depth basically everywhere with some exceptions maybe in the, in the front row but they've got proper beef in the uh, proper South African beef in the second row. They've got young kids coming through who are effervescent and look like the, the ceiling is we don't know yet for somebody like Craig Casey Zebo's back and looking in the mood they've got strength and depth in the midfield it's like it 
I'm not saying it's now or never because it's uh, we know you know sports eternal essentially. But for this coaching ticket, it feels like it's now or never. They've got to deliver, particularly over the next couple of months. Yeah, I do feel as though this is a really important um, season for that coaching ticket. You know, the three years together now, um, they have improved in the first two, but um, the expectation in, from them, uh, from as a squad and certainly as their supporter base, is to deliver silverware this year. And there's been a lot of talk from Johan van Graan, um, you know, being asked in the media about being in the final year of his contract, same with Stephen Larkin, they're all interested in staying. It'd be interesting to see what comes of of that in the coming weeks and months. You know, if if I was the Munster CEO, I'd probably be holding off until, you know, December, January before I pull the trigger on what happened because you want to understand whether there's been an improvement again, another preseason together and um and have they shown the level of improvement that is expected of a team of the quality that they now are showing? Their strength of squad is really good. I think you know you look at that back three. Who are you going to leave out when if it, when you're playing with a with a full deck with the likes of Sebo coming back, Shane Daly, you know, really another year of of professional rugby under his belt um, with great talent. You know, Haley, Mr. Solid, Conway, Earl. So these guys, it's 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 very very exciting from their perspective. But one thing being exciting, you've got to then deliver. And um, and I do feel as though um, nothing short of some form of silverware this year will be acceptable from a monster perspective. Um, because they've take, taken the stepping stones of being a very disappointing team four or five years ago, six years ago, to really improving quality of squad excellent strength and depth good foreign signings really good orgy Simon Snyman hopefully fit for the season this year um and the emergence of Ahern of Coombs of Casey um of a couple of the tens that are you know going to now get game time and back up to Carberry with AJ Hanrahan gone to France so all of these things are culminating towards giving them a great shot at um at being in the mix in two competitions so um, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how they um, progress over the course of the season and, and what decision comes of the futures of the coaching staff. Yeah, and it's going to be very interesting to see the imprint of, of Larkham on their style of play and particularly their backs. And you mentioned the, the 10 position. There's a lot resting on the shoulders of Joey Carberry with the injury over the last two and a half years. We've all been waiting for him to get back to the level or to you know it's almost like we've given him those two and a half years of expertise and experience and big game play and hope that he's going to come out the other side of that the player he would have been if he'd had all those extra caps but uh, that might not necessarily be the case no listen I think he's probably played enough games now that we can we can stop um yeah, I think I'm sure he doesn't want our sympathy of oh well he's nearly coming back he's back long enough now as he five, six games under his belt. Um a bit of a mixed bag um at the at the weekend, to be honest with you. You know, fell off a couple of tackles, kicking game, you know, in parts was uh, was um sporadic. Um and intercepts anyone can throw an intercept it was really well picked off. Um but there's definitely aspects of his game that are a lot to get excited by as well. He's you know an attacking threat like I don't think we have in other tens across the board, including Jonathan Sexton. He's a completely different attacking type of player than Jonathan Sexton. There are some things that I think he needs to sharpen up in his game. Watching the Ireland-USA uh, game there a couple of weeks ago, um, I do feel as though, you know, 
he needs to learn how to square carry into the into to straighten up his back line for him and, and create space for his big ball carriers outside him or his backs outside him. He has he is in the habit of turning his shoulders and passing to to in the uh, in the direction of where of of which he's situated um, rather than keeping his shoulders square to the defensive line and whipping passes across, um, which Sexton is excellent at doing. Um, you know, lots of it's a, it's the difficult thing to do. Um, and, and so the, um, sorry, but, but, just to, to, what's the impact of that? What difference would that make? Well, it, from a defensive point of view, as soon as I see you turning your shoulders um, to the touchline, I know that you're not a threat. I know that the pass is is gone, and that means immediately, immediately I'm pushing off, I'm wedging across, and I'm going to be to security for the next defender on the inside shoulder. And, and I'm going to communicate that. And it means the more likelihood of a double hit, depending on where that ball is going to. The squarer you can take it to the line, the more in, you've got to, you've interested that defender and you've sat them down. And that means you create more of an opportunity for the person outside you to put a little bit of footwork on, maybe get the inside shoulder of his defender. And that means the would-be you know, push defender that, um, that was, that, that's the security wouldn't have had the time to be able to push off and that creates soft shoulders and that creates offloads. So, you know, watching Paddy Jackson over the weekend in, um, in the premiership, he's guilty of doing it sometimes. Um, um, in Madigan, probably guilty of doing it sometimes as well. But I think the really great tens, if you watch over the careers of, um, of the Johnny Wilkinsons, of the Dan Carters, uh, of the Quade Coopers, he's a great guy to run a back line. It's how square their carries are and how late their pass is. Harry Byrne, another guy very good at doing it, rather than you know passing to where um, to you know you know passing to where his his target is actually facing, where his chest is facing to. You gotta you gotta whip it across your body um, by by holding those defenders inside and creating space selflessly for those outside. And would, and that means there's a likelihood that you might get hit as well. That's yeah. the other thing. There's a bit of there's a bit of um, you know self preservation in in that running across the field after your pass. The harder thing to do is hitting it square because you invite those late collisions to come on. But that's um, that's part and parcel of what you need to do to create space for others outside you. Yeah, and I suppose that's a business decision sometimes. Uh, and over the course of a career, <laughs> it could be the difference between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you that's why you find. Later in, in their career, more and more tens get deeper and deeper into the pocket because they think self-preservation. Um, Except who, for sex, though. Who's, who's Ireland's number 10 in November? If everybody stays fit between now and then. I, I think the reality is you, you're going to have to give jo- Joey Carberry some game time. I, I think it would be so... Um, it would be foolish of of Andy Farrell if he put all his eggs into the Jonathan Sexton basket over the course of the next 15 months or however long it is. She's nearly, it's two years um, to, to the next um, World Cup. So um, I think Joey Carberry, you know, all things being equal at the moment, is the next in line. Um, and he's going to need to get some game time. He, he needs some high-end um, URC games. He's obviously going to get... Uh, international rugby before he gets European rugby, but he just needs high caliber games where space is going to be squeezed and where we can see him growing into um, into that ten jersey all the more. He's still relatively young um, from from games from minutes played internationally and and time on field. 
Um, so the more experience you can give to a player like that in, in you know situations where it's significantly less time on the ball, you have to remember as well comparatively to the URC or domestic or European league. So you need to be able to learn from from your experiences. And he's he's a guy that sees the game very quickly. So I think he'll respond well to it. But um, but I do think that Joey Carberry is going to have to get a couple of games um, in November because we know what Jonathan Sexton is capable of doing. Um, and um, which games, you know, Sexton plays, um, I, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But I, I, I do feel as though it's 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 time on on feet for Joey Carberry this November. Yeah, look, we're all desperate for him to arrive in, in uh, fitness and, and in form in November to see, because we, we play Japan, New Zealand and Argentina in successive weeks. And it will be really interesting to see exactly how the team um, gets picked for those. Like, at the moment, there is so much going on in Irish rugby. There's going to be a new chief executive. We're not quite sure if New Sephora is going to be around for the longer term. And they're two key roles in Irish rugby and ultimately have a big say on whether or not the Irish head coach gets to stay longer term. It feels to me like it would be completely ridiculous at this point to change track before the World Cup. So we should assume that Andy Farrell has the gig, should we? Or I, I think you should. You know, I think the English game went a long way towards reinforcing the the, uh, the point that um, that... Now, like if you were going to make a change, it would have needed to be made over the course of the summer. There was no reason to do that. I think we got a huge injection of confidence as to what way that team is capable of playing in that English performance. Um, so, um, you know, even if even if Ireland, I don't know, God forbid, lost um, the three games in November, it does. I do get the sense from the players that they feel as though they're they're hearing the right messages, that they're doing the right things in training, that they are improving, they they are playing the game they want to play as a collective, that they are um, they aren't just following suit of other teams, that they're trying to do forge their own path in creating a game plan that is beneficial to their skill set. So they're, all of the right messages and notes are coming out of camp. I just wouldn't envisage under really any circumstances that you'd be looking to change your your, your coaching ticket um, with, you know, after November International, which will be less than two years out from, from a Rugby World Cup. I know other teams have done it, but um, I, I, I also don't see how we won't um, at least win two of the of three games in November. We, we should do, um, provided we're, we're picking from a pretty full deck. Yeah, and I suppose that has an impact on team selection because if you really desperately need to win those games, then you probably do end up just picking Sexton for the first game against Japan and making sure that we win that game. But if your job is safe, you feel like you can take a bit of a risk. Yeah, you do. And you can, and, and maybe that's, you know, we haven't seen um, as many players. We were lucky we got, we got to see some during the summer series um, getting their first caps and you know, people will critique always the why hasn't why didn't we see during the Six Nations um, more adventure, more players being blooded. Um, a few did. I'm not entirely sure how many new caps there were, but you have to be careful. It's, it's about you know being mindful of of holding on to your job, but also growing the the depth of your squad at the same time. We talked about it before. Coaches don't have the luxury of um, of doing what you know the likes of um, the French team have have done, mm. where 
um, they they kind of culled everyone above 30. We, we don't have that luxury. It just wouldn't go with public opinion, with media scrutiny. If we got beaten four of the five games in the Six Nations, your head would be on the chopping block. So I think he's found a happy medium where there's been an integration of some of the younger emerging players. But at the same time, he's kept performance levels a high enough um, standard and also managed to pick off one or two big victories. So that's about it's always about fine tuning that and making sure that you you get the balance of those thing two things right and I, I think Andy Farrell's doing that so far yeah for sure rugby and off the ball is with thanks to Vodafone official sponsor of the Irish rugby team team of us everyone in how um if, if that all happens right you would assume that uh we have uh Carberry starting 10 and Sexton on the bench how is Sexton going to evolve into a bench player at this stage of his career, will there be Leo Messi-style dagger looks from everybody or is he going to be fine with it? Um, well, you see, the tricky thing is that Johnny Sexton is the captain of the team as well. And so what do you, ha- you, know, what do you say to your captain when you bench him? I think even he must be realistic to the fact that he's not guaranteed to make it to the World Cup in two years' time. I, you know, I... I I've spoken to him recently. Our, our our sons play rugby together, so I get a chance to have a chat with him. And I think he's very much taking it um, year by year. He definitely hasn't looked to France 2023. I think he's looking at trying to get his body in good shape, which it is at the moment. Um, and he um, and he's just looking forward to kind of bringing a new energy. Obviously, there would have been disappointment from not being on, on the Lions tour, but... I think it's probably dawned on him that he's not going to play this game forever. And even when two or three years ago, you know, you look ahead to think, oh, I'm, I'll make to the next World Cup. When you get to 35, 36, a year is a long time. So there's no point getting ahead of yourself. And I think at the moment, he's definitely still Ireland's number 110. That's the reality of it. Um, if he can remain fit and strong and injury-free, I still think he'll be our number one choice even in two years' time, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, with uh, or what whether that speaks about the quality coming through, I, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But um, he's been a player for the ages, and he's still delivering at a particular level that um, is significantly higher than than any anybody else. And people will disagree with that. With Joey Carberry, I, I still don't see that right now on on the performances that I've seen over the course of the last six months. So. Um, yeah, we'll we'll have to wait and see what comes of November. Well, that's the challenge for everybody to try and take the position off him. Um, I did want to talk to you a little bit about the, the rule changes and, and the various interpretations of the rules and the red cards and, and the various things that we've seen. Um, obviously, Razzie's video has kind of set the tone now for what you're allowed to say as a, an international head coach or, sorry, director of rugby, because obviously if he was the head coach, he wouldn't be allowed on the, on the field of play carrying the water. Um uh, the the amplification of, of the pressure around the referees has reached a point now where every single decision comes under intense scrutiny and, and like maybe they should be because the big careers are made and lost on bad decisions but uh, recently we saw the, the red card in the New Zealand-Australia game where Jordy Barrett goes up and it gets rescinded what, what, what was your take on that whole process? Oh, good question. How we're going down a uh, rabbit hole here, um, Jer. Um, like for me, so to, in simple terms, I, I I've watched those sort of actions over the course of the last couple of years, and for ninety nine percent of the time, if you 
you know, having played the game and, and watching um, the level of elevation that these back three players more often than not go to and the timing aspect, um, so, meant, so much of that leverage from body and the leg going out is is pure science. Is just it's an instinctive play of a recalibration of your body weight when you're reaching back and your and your back reaches back in an arc. The only way for you to land without injury, without landing on your back, is to extend your leg out. Now, in one case, maybe over the course of the last few years, I did feel as though a player visually looked and kicked out to try and defend themselves. People will say that about Jordy Barrett that his eye line was on was a Corabetti. And Kate was was the one coming in to tackle him, um, but there's so many incidences out there now where it's a similar situation and they're really tiny near misses. Um, James Lowe had one at the weekend where he extended his leg out and he must have missed the oncoming defender. I think it was Hendricks by three or four inches from clipping his jaw. Now, who's at fault there? Is that science or is that the defender or is it just a rugby incident? And for me, it's it's the it's the third thing. It's um, it's a it's a rugby incident, and I think you can tell when a player um, intentionally sticks their leg out. And I, I've only seen one of those, in my opinion. And it is an opinion piece. Lots of people are saying, "Well, you still you can't kick a player in the head." Well, you know, you can't fight your what your body is going to do in claiming a high ball. You just can't fight it. If you sit on a wall, right? And here's a test: if you sit on a wall and push someone's chest. What's going to happen? The leg, they're going to, they're going, the leg is going to come out, right? It's just an instinctive play and to try and keep yourself from falling, from, from rebalancing yourself. And the same is happening when you go up in the air. And I've seen so many players, particularly back three players, uh, and, and I'm conscious of not laboring the point on social media or whatever, but I've shown a couple of instances. And it feels as though the back three players are the only ones that truly feel as though they understand it. And I get frustrated when people are like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I do. And I have, I've you know, spoken to Rob Kearney and Luke Fitzgerald and I see Anthony Watson um, you know, talking about it as well. This is not foul play for the vast majority of players. It's just reacting and recalibrating body weight. And, and I'm glad that the Geordie Barrett... Um, incident was uh, was overridden because I, I didn't feel you know people said oh he threw a glance to see where Corabetti was I don't think he did I think his 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 ability to be able to read the oncoming defenders as he caught it and looked at them was probably ahead of where most players would be able to take take focus of the ball and then see where their target is coming he was able to do it just a bit, a bit quicker and it made it look even worse I mean, knowing that somebody is coming in to hit you is probably a good thing too, that you kind of actually need to know where your man's coming from. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're kicking out to try and take his head off. No, and and like, and like what's the the margins where Carabetti came charging in? Like the, in all likelihood, Carabetti was going to catch him clean in the air, right? Um, so he, he, he got himself in so close um, to the point that um, that it was, you know, it was just a reactive thing. It was just a collision. Whereas there's so many other instances where a player realizes someone's going up in the air and they're they don't they're trying to get the timing of the hit for when they land a little bit better. Carabetti's timing was terrible. He got way too close for the hang time of where 
Barrett was. He couldn't. He would have had to completely come off the gas to then make the tackle. Whereas players are trying to time themselves, realizing you know, a few meters out that they're not going to get up in the air, they're not going to get to compete. So you come off the gas, allow the player to drop, and it's when they drop, the foot should already be gone down for you to be able to accelerate and, and, and make the collision. So um, you, it, it's going to be contentious over the course of the season. I don't know why it's just coming to light now. It's because in the past that these sort of collisions were seen as rugby incidents. I don't see what's changed in that regard. I don't see players trying to kick out. And now that they know that they could get sent off for it, you're going to see even fewer players trying to, to con the referee. So it's going to happen. There's going to be flicks of, of heads. There's going to be boots into faces potentially. Um, and, and I do think that you're going to have to um, rule it as, as being a rugby incident. And there might even be claret involved. And aesthetically, that mightn't look great, but you know what, you're going to have these sort of instances in rugby. That's the reality of the game you play. We're all just waiting for the video from Razzie to explain what we're supposed to think about it. That's, that'll be the next yeah. thing. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, can't, I, I don't even think we've heard from World Rugby yet, have we, um, on Razzie's video? Should, I'm really looking forward to their 350-page you know, document on, um, on you know, pinpointing exactly where he went wrong. I can't see anything coming of that at this stage. What are we, eight weeks later, which seemed a bit farcical in itself. It's going to be like an East Coast, West Coast rap battle where he makes a video and they make a longer video and we all have to sit through an hour and 25 minutes to see what they think about it. So <laughs> I think we'll be coming back to that one whenever uh, judgment is pronounced. Brian, great to have you back. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Cheers, sure. Talk to you. Bye-bye. That's uh, Brian O'Driscoll back with us. The place that you can exclusively catch the full Brian O'Driscoll podcast is on the OTB Sports app. There's a 24-hour window where you'll only get it there. There's a fresh episode every second Wednesday before it goes live everywhere else. Subscribe to Brian O'Driscoll on OTB and we'll see you next time. Take care. Brian O'Driscoll on Off The Ball with Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. Team of us. Everyone in. We're funny creatures as humans. Impulsive. Stubborn. We procrastinate for eternity and make decisions on a whim. Can we ever say with complete certainty where our choices are going to take us? Just remember, once in a while, we get it right. You'll never take a wrong turn with Toyota. Ireland's best-selling hybrid electric cars. Toyota. Built for a better world. Best-selling claim based on most recently published figures.